0: And as you open to 1 Kings chapter 7, I want to remind you that several weeks ago in the introduction to this book of 1 Kings, and I, I know that the seventh graders weren't here, but I highlighted something about this book that you definitely need to be reminded of before we approach our chapter this morning. Uh, I wanted you to know all those weeks ago that when you think about 1 Kings, in its entirety, when you think of this book, you have to understand that it's a book that is on purpose. Every word has been carefully thought about. Every part of it is, that's here was carefully selected by the author, both the human writer who penned it and, of course, the Holy Spirit who inspired it. A uh, great verse to remind you of that truth is 2 Peter 1.21, which says, No prophecy, and that's what this would be, uh, the word from God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know First Kings was written by a, a human author, but God, through the Holy Spirit, also carefully chose what's here. And so God has a message And his message found in 1 Kings is intentional. And, you know, how how do we know that? And I want you to know, and I said this several weeks ago too, but a good reminder, we know that that's true because 1 Kings covers a a period, a history of over 400 years. And that history is captured in only about 50,000 words And it's going to feel like we're reading all 50,000 words this morning because our chapter's very long. But I still want you to know that, uh, you know, what's here, what's what's here is on purpose and it's good for us. You, like most Bible readers, don't have a lot of tolerance for the Bible when it's tedious as it will be this morning. But in these unexciting details of how the Old Testament temple of God is decorated, and that's what our chapter is going to be about, I don't want you to lose sight of what's truly important here. I don't want you to miss it. God is selective about what he wants us to know, even in a chapter like this. This chapter is very long, but it could be so much longer. So much that God could have said. And what's here, though, is is here on purpose. It's intentional. The author's not trying to provide us with every single little detail about how the temple was decorated. It's not exhaustive, but it's a God-authorized version of how we're meant to view this part of God's history. And in the midst of some tedious descriptive language of the temple, I believe there are some really helpful lessons for us to learn about how we approach God. As Solomon built this place of worship for Yahweh and as it was decorated, there are several indications here in chapter 7 of the attitudes that worshipers need to have as they approach God. It's so important. And for Israel here, as they approach the temple, there's going to be reminders of who God is along the way. God's promises are are on display, even in how the temple's decorated. God's power, God's faithfulness, it's all there to help the worshiper know who the one he's about to worship is actually like. We're going to see some reminders of who man actually is in his relationship to God, a reminder of our weakness, which really just reminds us that our strength is truly found in God. Our hope is found in God alone. And my hope is that you'll see when the dust of the details settle here, that God is truly worthy of our best God is so worthy of our best. God is marvelous, and he's worthy of our excellence. Beauty is fitting for him. The most beautiful, that's due him. God is worthy of that. He's worthy of the finest that anyone could ever possibly offer. Our big idea, it's it's tucked here in the details of a long chapter. Approach God with the respect he deserves. That's our big idea. In other words, remind yourself of who God is before you treat him like one of your peers. Consider his majesty. Consider the character of God before you dismiss him like a little sibling that's annoying you. Before you pray to him, you should consider who he is. Before you sing to him, remind yourself of his promises and his power, of his strength and your weakness. Before you offer him flippant and distracted and insincere worship, remember that he is worthy of the best that we could ever possibly offer. Again, our big idea, approach God with the respect he deserves. You may be wondering, well, how can I make sure I do that? What would motivate me or help me to do that, to have the right view of God so that I approach him the right way? Well, believe it or not, 1 Kings 7 can help us. It's going to take me about eight and a half minutes to read it. At least that's how long it took me in my garage yesterday. So stay with me. Um, and then I'll have a few comments to follow and maybe we'll try something just to keep you listening. I'm going to ask you instead of following along to just listen. And if you're a, I don't know, let's do it this way. If you're a seventh grade boy, uh, when you hear me say the word house, I just want you to stand and do a house over you. Okay. It's in there a lot. Uh, if you hear the word, um, cubit, if you're a 7th grade girl, I want you to stand and go like this because a cubit is about the length of your elbow to your fingertips, okay? And if you're in 8th grade, when you hear the word pillar, I want you to stand up and just show me your best pillar, okay? Got it? You got your assignments? 7th grade dude's house, 7th grade girl's cubits, 8th grader's pillar, Okay? Eight and a half minutes, here we go. First Kings chapter seven, verse one. This is the word of God. And you're gonna get you're gonna get tested right away here, boys. So be ready. Solomon was building his own house. Good thirteen years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits, and its breadth fifty cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from Florida rafters, his own house where he was to dwell. And the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. You're doing great. I'm really proud of you. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. You're, you're losing it. You got to stay on it. And King Solomon sent and brought "'Hiram from Tyre. "'He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, "'and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. "'And he was full of wisdom, understanding, "'and skill for making any work in bronze. "'He came to King Solomon and did all his work. "'He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, "'and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference.' It was hollow and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. You're doing great. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checkerwork with wreaths of chainwork for the capitals on the tops of the pillars a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The, cap- <laughs> the capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. You're still not done. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths. He also made the 10 stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. Your legs are burning. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. On the panels that Uh, were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of of beveled work, and beloved, I think. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal is made a cubit and a half deep and its opening at its opening there were carvings and its panels were square not round and the four wheels were underneath the panels the axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half the wheels were made like a chariot wheel their axles their rims their spokes and their hubs were all cast There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round band half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surface of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. Verse 38. And he made 10 basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the 10 stands. And he set the stands five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set at the southeast corner uh, and he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. "'Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. "'So Hiram finished all the work that he did "'for King Solomon on the house of the Lord, "'the two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals "'that were on the tops of the pillars, "'and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls "'of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, "'and on the four hundred pomegranates "'for the two lattice works, "'the two rows of pomegranates for each latticework "'to cover the two bowls of the capitals "'that were on the pillars.' The ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. And the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them, and the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the South side and five on the North before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense and fire pans of pure gold and the sockets of gold. For the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and he stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. He did great. got your calisthenics for the day. (laughs) You would have all fallen asleep if I didn't do that. Trust me. So listen, big idea. Again, approach God with the respect he deserves. How can we make sure that we're doing that? What can motivate us to have the right view of God? How can we correct our casual approach to God that We sometimes have, or maybe frequently have. Well, first, let me just comment on the testimony of the entire chapter. I want to call it this. Incredible beauty points to an incredible God. Incredible beauty, number one, it points to an incredible God. So there's so much detail here in these many verses. So much detail. So much to potentially distract us or make us sleepy. Maybe a few of you got curious about some of that. But if you you can get through it, you want to know about, I don't know, all these other houses and halls that Solomon's making in the first 12 verses. Uh, There's a lot of stone and cedar, and we get the impression that it's beautiful, but they're outside of the temple, And quickly, we're back to the temple where we're introduced to this bronze worker who's quite skilled, Uh, and his name's Hiram, and apparently he's willing to travel for work. And his main task is building these two massive pillars. They're about 27 feet high, and they have something on top called a capital, which we think capital city, that's not it. It's an architectural thing that sits on top about another seven feet high. So these two massive pillars, one on the north and south of the temple, stood almost 35 feet high, very tall, like the building we're in when you walk up to it, close to that, big, okay? And, and those are there, and those two pillars are are really beautiful, and they're meant to sort of capture our attention. And then it gets real detailed, and, it, and maybe even a little... Confusing. There's a description of a bronze sea and it holds measurements of water that we've never heard of called a bath. What is that? Well, it's about five gallons of water. So, this massive thing, it's this basin made of bronze, holds like 11,000 gallons of water. It's huge and it rests on 12 statues that look like bulls. And the author's kind enough to say that its rear faced inward. And I appreciated that detail. There's just so much here, right? It goes on. Not only is this big sea thing there, but there's, there's more. There's these stands to be built. 10, in fact, verse 27 says. Uh, they have basins on them, and they're able to hold about 200 gallons of water. And they're mobile. They have wheels on them to be moved around, although they would have weighed probably close to a ton, Uh, Literally 2,000 pounds, it would have been super heavy. So there's stands and basins and there's one big sea and there's 12 oxen underneath it and there's pots and shovels. And if you still made it, verse 48, just gets this rapid fire list, altars, tables, lampstands, flowers, lamps, tongs, cups, snuffers, basins, dishes, fire pans, stuff for the doors. It's just a lot. It's so much. And it's not really easy for us to, like, read all of that and stay with it. Lack of interest, though, I just want to say it this way. Our lack of interest, it does not match the author's interest. He's so excited about this it feels like work for us to get through all that you know i'm trying to keep you interested by making you do like push-ups and stuff but the author god doesn't view this chapter like that at all he wanted us to know this detail because to him it's interesting and it matters. It's incredible beauty. We can't miss all of that. Even if we're not quite sure what it looked like or how it all might have gone together, we are left with a, 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 an impression, one and only impression, and that is this is breathtaking. This is God's house and God's temple. And even though some of the intricacies and details seen unimportant to us. They aren't to God. Why would it matter what the top of a 35 foot pillar looks like? If you really think about it, so many worshipers on the way into the temple would never, ever be able to see it. Why is that description here? It it, to me, it seems plausible that the author describes it so that we can understand its beauty, but also be reminded that it's not our eyes that are important. It doesn't matter that it was out of sight for most men because it wasn't that way for God. It was incredible craftsmanship and it was beautiful and it should have been because it was for God. It was his eyes that saw it. There's nothing too good for him. One pastor implies this incredible truth that nothing can be too lavish or too well done for such a marvelous God. That's just a great, place to take a second and ask yourself one question. Do I ever think of God that way? Do I ever consider him like that? That there's nothing too good for him, nothing too marvelous for him, too wonderful because of who he is. That's why Solomon, he he brought in the, the best. That's why he hires this man named Hiram from Tyre. Why have him come in and do all this work? Well, because it was for God. Not for Solomon, not for God's people, but this is a house for God. We won't cut corners. We won't be cheap. We want it to be the very best because God deserves our very best. And so here is this beautiful temple And her beauty is a reflection uh, of the majesty of God. This incredible detail, this incredible cost to build such beauty, all of it worth it. Why? Because God, again, is worthy of our very best, our worship. It can be so diminished when we don't view God the way that we should. It can be so hindered when we offer him our leftovers, Instead of our best, we, we might think he doesn't care or he won't see. But even here, we're reminded that, of course, he sees what's out of sight for men is under his watchful eye. Job 28, 24 says, for he, God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Proverbs 5.21, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. Not only is everything under his watchful eye, but everything we do also under the eye of God. God knows, God sees. And when it comes to our approach to God, our initial thought should always be like this. He deserves my very best. The side of the temple would have made your jaw hit the floor. Truly incredible. But that's nothing. God himself makes your whole body hit the floor. Who he is, is so much more than this temple. Far more incredible than we can imagine. So, what's a junior hire to do? Give God your attention when you pray. Give God your focus when you read his word. Give him your thoughts when we sing songs of praise to him. Give God your very best effort when you serve for him. This temple was incredibly beautiful, but we should know why. Because God is an incredible God. What else can help us approach God with the respect that he deserves Let's move now just from this whole chapter to two words, and it's really the pillars, two pillars of truth. Lastly, we can learn not only from everything that's here, but these two pillars are important, clearly. They get a lot of ink in this chapter, and they even get nicknames. But these names, Jacob and and Boaz, are are way more than that. When I was uh, a lot younger than you... I was quite the slow eater and picky eater. Uh, things have changed. Um, I'm, I lo- love all foods now. Uh, but when I was younger, my two older brothers were annoyed at my pace of eating and also my pickiness. Uh, if you brought me a cheeseburger with anything other than meat and cheese and maybe like a little ketchup, anything, I would not eat it. Like if there, a pickle touched it, it's all gross and tainted and ruined and I, I just would pick at it. So I would pick at that. I'd pick at my food. Like I was just picky and slow. And so they nicknamed me Jaybird. Like I just eat like a little bird. I just pick at stuff and I never eat. I'm slow, whatever. So that name reminds me of that, that I was a picky eater. I was a slow eater. And that's very similar to what's happening here. Jacob is a, is a word. These are nicknames, but so much more. Jakin, this first one, a word that means God will establish That's so important. As these worshipers walked into the temple, they saw that massive pillar and it reminded them that God will establish something. As we think more about that word, it's most likely a reminder to God's people when they entered that temple that they would know God would establish all the promises that he's ever made that God would do what he said he would do. He would establish his kingdom on earth one day, and most fitting for these people, that he would establish his royal line that he promised through Solomon's father, David. Jacob would have been a hugely helpful and motivating pillar for God's people to walk past. And on the other side, Boaz, that speaks to the strength of God. It's a name that means In Yahweh, in God, there is strength. It's a reminder for the source of the king's strength. But what a help those two pillars would provide to all of God's people. As they prepared to worship God, walking into that temple, reminded of his promises and his power. As they saw those two massive pillars, one, to stir up thoughts of what God had said, the other what God can do. That's so helpful, you know. And of course, we're still in a a similar situation as we approach God. We need the same reminders. We need a a Jacob and, and a Boaz. Believers, Christians, young Christians too, they need reminders of the promises of God, of the assurance of their salvation, and a reminder of our inability to do anything in our own power. Christians need those reminders of God's faithfulness and to have their hearts filled with hope as they rest in God's providence, as they find joy in God's sovereignty. I know God's in control. I know what he's doing. And Christians need daily doses of reality that that God's strength is sufficient for our lives. Sometimes we can think a little too highly of ourselves when in reality we're both hopeless and helpless without God. On your way into church this morning, you may have noticed the two pillars out front. I'm just kidding, there's no pillars. You guys are like, there are pillars here? We don't have these pillars anymore, do we? We don't have those pillars because we don't need the temple anymore to worship God. We don't need pillars because we have His of his word. As we assemble every week as the church, there are reminders that should be fresh on our mind, but they come from here. As we go about our daily lives, God wants us to daily dwell in his promises and in his power as he's revealed in his word. And of course that happens as we're in his word. We understand those, we see those pillars of truth those great reminders and promises as we study what God has for us in Scripture. We don't need pillars anymore. All we truly need is our Bible. We have the word to remind us of who he is and to tell us the truth about who we are. And as those pillars served as a guide to worshipers entering the temple, temple so long ago, so God's word guides us in our daily lives here. Psalm 119, 105, a verse I'm sure many of your parents have said to you before, but God's word truly is a lamp. It is a light. It's a guide for us to help us understand all those things that we need to know. No longer need pillars to guide us. We have his word. The truths that those pillars, Jachin and Boaz stood for, those truths are all over scripture. There's a Jachin and a Boaz on every page. You would find it, you would read it, and you would see. But how fitting for us in a tediously long chapter of detail. We find here in 1 Kings 7, yes, a lot of information, but we find a reminder of the glory of God, a reminder of the splendor of God and how he has always been so worthy of our very best. God has always been gracious to mankind, helping us understand who he is and how to approach him. We don't have pillars, but God's word consistently reminds us of the truths that he wants us to know Of the truths that he wants you to know. That you could see that and hear that. That you would know that God will bring to reality what he's promised. God will establish. He'll do what he says he would do. And that God, of course, is our strength. Those truths should cause us to turn to God. They should cause us to run to him and to embrace his promises Embrace his blessing, receive that incredible and gracious gift that he offers in the gospel. But as we do run to him, as we approach God, we need to approach him the right way. Especially if you are a young Christian here this morning, a great reminder that we approach God with the respect and the care and the love and the worship he deserves. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning in your word that Father is always so truly remarkable. Lord, our disinterest is only a reflection of what we don't understand, what we don't know. God, truly your word is helpful. Every word meant for us. Lord, we're thankful to, to read it and study it and to be reminded of who you are learned how to approach you in a better way. God, thank you for the truths that we have looked at this morning. I pray that you would just impress those reminders and truths on the hearts of these young junior hires. God, those who don't know you, may they be encouraged to hear that you are a God who is trustworthy, that you are a God who will do what he says he'll do. Lord, thank you for the gifts you offer us in the gospel. Thank you for your word that is a guide for us. Lord, thank you that we don't need a temple anymore to worship you, but that we can worship you everywhere and every day. And we're grateful for our King and our Savior. And It's in his name we pray. Amen.